Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. This is Kaveh. Thank you so much for tuning in to the show. Today is going to be an old episode. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One, um, it was from uh, earlier last year, and I think a lot of you are relatively new listeners who haven't heard some of these old ones. So I would like to share some of those with you now that there are some more listeners listening, but also uh take a little vacation here at the house of pod going to give my my crack staff a week or two off here and by staff i mean me <clears throat> pretty much me and uh nadim helps too so but that's about it so we're gonna take this week and uh i'm gonna let you listen to this episode which i think is really useful and it's a really good one it's with tr levin who is one of the world's leading experts in colorectal cancer and an all-around mensch and author and dr john chuck who wrote this great book about trying to find joy even when things are pretty awful it's for doctors but i think it's pretty applicable for anyone um so anyways i hope you enjoy it thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate it and thank you so much for writing reviews and and leaving them at itunes and um new episodes coming up soon you're gonna love them and i'll see you guys soon bye I'm Kaveh. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I am the host of this uh, medically adjacent podcast. And today I have two people with me and I'm very excited to have them both. First, let's introduce back to the show, Dr. T.R. Levin. Uh, T.R., how are you doing? I'm doing well. I've actually recovered from my little bout with COVID. 
Yeah, I yeah. I'm about 95%. So uh, you believe was... it exists now, huh? <laughs> now you believe it exists. I can tell you it's real. It's definitely not a hoax. No, it's that, not a hoax. That, that was real. How, how was it? How'd you do? I did okay. It was interesting. I had to actually test several days in a row before I got a positive. I was, I, I had a sore throat one night. Next day I went, got a PCR. That was negative and uh, still wasn't convinced. So this day after that, I got an antigen test that was negative. And then I was actually starting to feel a little better still like brain foggy. So I was like, yeah. oh, let's do one more time. And yep, that was it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, so my third test was actually the one that was positive. And uh, uh, I knew a guy, actually my wife knew a doctor. And so I was able to get a, a prescription for Paxlovid, which yeah. uh, the Paxlovid mouth that they tell you about, that is real. That Tell, uh, first of all, let me ask you this. What criteria did you meet to get the, that medication? I'm a little bit older. So I'm, no, I'm 50. You look great. You look I'm, great. <laughs> I'm 57 years old. Uh, 22 years ago, I had a case of respiratory failure. Actually ended up in an ICU on a ventilator for like two weeks, uh, two or three weeks. And uh, yeah, it was a uh, condition it was caused by a relatively innocuous bacteria called mycoplasma but my body's immune reaction was so severe that i just kept i was on the right antibiotics i just kept getting worse and worse and really if you when they told me my vent settings after i woke up i was really uh grateful because i had never seen anyone with vent settings like i had that had ever survived so yeah. so my wife was she's very primed as soon as i get even a sniffle she's like Wants to make sure I'm make sure I'm not going into ARDS. You know, fire. you know, it's funny because that happened before I met you, but yeah. I, I had heard of that story. And then, you know, when you and I have been talking over the last couple of years, there's been a couple of times where I, you're you're not you're not cavalier. You've never been cavalier about COVID, but you've never I've never gotten the impression that you've been afraid of it more unduly, at least. Um, and there was a couple of times where I wanted to be like, hey, aren't you a little bit more worried? <laughs> because of your history, but I didn't want to say that because I didn't feel no. like that would be a very helpful thing to say, <laughs> but, um, but you, you, you did it, you got through it. Right. And, yeah. And, and you feel it, it went smoothly. I mean, really five days on the packs of it. And then I was like ready to go back to work the next day after that. So, uh, but the first few days I wasn't doing much of anything. It was flat on flat on my back and, uh, just couldn't think, couldn't think two thoughts or, uh, do very much of anything. Wow. Well, uh, TR, you are a, an expert in the field of colorectal cancer screening, um, and you're our go-to source on, on this show, even though I am also a GI doctor, you are the guy I look to for advice on that sort of stuff when it gets complicated. But today, we're not going to talk about that. We are going to talk to Dr. John Chuck, our next guest. He is a family physician, a wellness consultant. He's an award-winning teacher with over three decades of experience uh, dealing with patients, taking care of patients. Um, and we, he has a book that we're going to talk about today called Pearls from the Practice of Life, a Family Physician's Guide to Help You Struggle Less and Thrive More. Dr. John Chuck, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. I'm super happy to be here as the elder statesman. I'm the 61-year-old guy. And oh. uh, I, ha you know, I, I haven't had COVID yet. Both my kids who live in the Bay Area have. They got super sick. I have this theory based on nothing that old farts like me who've been exposed to just like generations of coronaviruses are, are just a, have a little broader immunologic repertoire 
Uh, that being said, I'll probably come down with COVID tomorrow and, and get on a vent or something. But yeah, let's uh, let's not test your theory. I no, don't. But, you I don't know, love I mean, your theory. I, I mean, I'm appropriately cautious and everything. I'm not cavalier, but I, I'm not too worried about it. But we'll see what happens. I mean, I will say, my wife is a pediatrician, and obviously, she's exposed to tons of uh, coronaviruses. And for the first three days, while I was testing negative, we were in the same room, and and she never got it. We, we didn't we didn't start isolating till after I turned. I just heard someone sneeze in the background. What was that? There. I mean, just as you said, <laughs> those that. Are, those that's seasonal allergies only. No, seasonal no, uh, yeah, uh, get an ambu bag or something. I mean, find find a straw. Get that woman ventilated. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Dr. Chuck, thank you so much for, for joining us. You know, I want to talk about your book, Pearls from the Practice of Life. I, um, it's not a self-help book. Uh, how would you describe it? How would you describe the book? You know, it's really interesting. Um, it's, I would describe it as a compilation of everything that I learned about how to live your best life over decades um, that, that I could remember to write about. And uh, one of my friends, who, uh, Christine Olson, who's the chief wellness officer at, at Yale Hospital, she, she uh, on, on the back of the book, she, her endorsement is, you know, it's best read as kind of like a daily devotional. You just kind of pick it up and read a chapter or two and just think about it and mull it over. And if you like it, do something about it. And if not, just let it go. But, um, you know, there are 69 chapters, which is sort of odd, right? Um, in fact, one day, I, nice. I was six months into retirement. I was writing the book part-time. Careful, Kave. No, I know. You know, and I, I turned to my wife and I said, hey, I'm done. I've got 69 chapters. And she said, well, you can't publish a book with 69 chapters. Do you know what 69 means? I said, yeah, isn't it a good thing? Like, that? Is that a bad thing? But anyway, I, I spent two days trying to write a 70th chapter but, and, and I was trying to write one about how golf is a great metaphor for life, because I think it is, like I played today, it, it's all about life, but, but it didn't quite rise to the level of the other 69. So anyway, uh, I sort of published it at 69, and, and it's, yeah, I don't think it's a self-help book either. It's just kind of, um, it's just like little good stories and words of encouragement and advice that somebody who loves you would tell you over a cup of coffee or something like that, right? And mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it is. It, it has that feel of like a, a mentor sitting down with you and just giving little brief anecdotes. I, I definitely see that. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I don't typically read books of this sort um, because I find them oftentimes maybe they either take themselves too seriously yeah. or, or maybe they, maybe they're too disconnected from reality and they're a little too Pollyanna-esque. Um, I didn't get that sense here. I feel like there's a, a real sense of humility when you write this book. You're not pretending to be um, smarter than the average doctor, but you're sharing things that you've learned um, and paid attention to and, and taking the time to, written, to write down, which I, I appreciate and I thought was very good. So Yeah, I'm uh, definitely not one of the smarter doctors. You know, one of the things I loved about working at TPMG for 31 years was just being kind of in the middle of the pack or may, maybe like, you know, um, a trailer and stuff. I just love being surrounded by super talented people. And um, if you read the book, you find that very little of the advice that I give is anything I thought of. It's just stories about other people and what they taught me. Yeah. And so that, that, that's why it's good. And, and the other thing that you might enjoy, Cave, um, is that I grew up in San Francisco reading the Chronicle. And my mm -hmm. understanding is that the Chronicle was written at the sixth grade level. So I'm pretty sure, sure that for my entire life, I've been writing at the sixth grade level. <laughs> so you, you're probably attracted well, to that. 
Well, also, you know, I am part of the younger generation where it needs to be like in short little bits. Yeah. You can't yeah. have like, oh, okay, yeah, five. I mean, the chapters in this book are like three pages and less, and that's like right at my level. <laughs> yeah, so they, they go from a half a page to three pages. And um, my, my wife said that they're written very simply, but some of the topics are, are, are kind of deep. So you read it and then you have to think about it for a day or two and, and then just come back to it. Well, let's let's start with a little bit of the 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 things that you discuss in this book. You, you talk about uh, things that we've heard, I think, along the way in the last couple of years about mindfulness. We you, you heard you hear about gratitude. You talk about the uh, importance of um, learning from people who have a skill set other than you might have. Let me just start by by addressing what I think probably a lot of people are dealing with right now, which is it, we seem to be in a particularly bad time in medicine. I mean, there's been a lot of rough times in medicine, but I don't know if there's been one that's worse than this. If you were to write an addendum to it, if you were to write a sequel for this book in, in a time of COVID, after, after living through the last couple of years, is there anything different you would add to it? Anything new you would add to it? Wow. That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. It's not even like we rehearsed it. So you know, I spent a lot of time in the East Bay and I'm trying to support local bookstores. So I went into uh, East Bay booksellers on college. I actually uh, went there while my sister-in-law was putting her dog down at a vet two blocks down. And I, I went to the uh, psychology self-help section and I picked up a copy of uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which I think I had read a long time ago, but I said, I'm going to support this bookstore. I'm going to buy this another book and stuff. I think I also bought Frank Ostaseski's The Five Invitations, which is excellent also. But, but I guess I was struck by Victor Frank. And here's the thing about doctors and nurses and medical students. Like, we're so arrogant. We don't like to take advice from anybody unless we think they suffered more than us, or, uh, more than <laughs> us, or they're smarter than us. And I think that Victor Frankel was just as smart as all of us, and he suffered more than any of us, right? So he's totally got street cred with suffering uh, healthcare wanna, professionals during tell COVID. Us a, tell us a little about Victor Frankel and uh, why he was, uh, you know, what kind of suffering he went through. Yeah, so Viktor Frankl was an Austrian-trained psychiatrist who Hitler put in death camps, and he survived four death camps. And apparently the statistics are that one out of 29 people come out of death camps. So he was one of the 29. And what he observed in the death camps was that it was natural for a normal human being to just lose hope, right? And it's natural for healthcare professionals in the midst of COVID to lose hope. That, that's the default you know, emotion and feeling uh, and stuff. And he said, in the death camps, he observed when people lost hope, they literally died. Now, I think in healthcare, if we lose hope, we're probably not literally going to die, but we'll be very discouraged and maybe leave the profession or be impaired or at the very least dysfunctional. So anyway, so if I were to write an addendum, I would share what Victor Franco said, which he said, in those moments of utter despair, you know, the deepest, darkest time of your life, you actually have to choose to maintain hope. And he said, you, you have to choose to go saint or go swine. And he said, most of us go swine, right? We just start blaming other people, blame the system. Why are these people doing this to me? Why am I living during COVID? But he said, you, what you really need to do is just look at yourself and decide, what can I do to make this better? Because he goes, things are really bad. But if, if you as an individual don't do your best, it's going to be even worse. So 
You know, the whole thing that, that I keep hearing, you know, experts and physician wellness say, well, you know, if so many of us are burned out, it's obviously not an issue of personal resilience. It's really the system, you know, it's the culture and it's the inefficiency of operations. And my response to that is, that's wrong. I said, first of all, you know, if you work in a large system, even if it's super efficient, um, the, 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 the progress in improving culture and efficiency of operations is glacial. It's at a glacial pace, right? So I think any one of us who sits around waiting for the administrators and the bean counters to fix it, like, like good luck with that. So, so that's why, and then they say, it must not be an issue of personal resilience because physicians are really good at resilience. And if we're all burned out, it, it's not our fault. But I guess one point I try to make is that Physicians and nurses, you know, we're all the most obsessive compulsive people from the third grade. And the way that we deal with difficulty is we just work harder. We, we try to work harder and to be more perfect. And, and, and that same MO, which was great to get us through college into med school, nursing school, board certified, great job. That's the same MO that will destroy us over a 30 year career. So, so I, I do think that physicians have a lot of room for improvement in, in personal resilience. And I, I think one thing that I think is a great source of personal resilience way beyond eating a lot of kale and being mindful is sort of the, the, the work of um, Antonovsky, this Israeli sociologist who studied like uh, survivors of death camps uh, in World War II. And he found that I think like 37% of women survivors of death camps thought life was good. And he, in his research, he found that those women possess something called a sense of coherence, which is they just had this fundamental belief that life is understandable and manageable and life is good despite circumstances. So I do think that healthcare professionals need to really turn inward and stop blaming the system for everything or waiting for the system and culture to improve. Because I really think that there's huge potential in individuals to have more join meaning regardless of circumstances, not not that people shouldn't continue to work on all those things, like all great, all great, but I think we also need to turn inward. And I would not listen to people who say it's not an issue of resilience training, because uh, I, I think that resilience for COVID can be learned. You know, I don't know if I totally agree with all of that, though. I, I do feel looking inward, and I do feel working on ourselves is important no matter what. But at the same time, I, I also don't think we're going to, you know, gratitude our way out of toxic workplaces, out of toxic workloads, increasing workloads. I think it has to be twofold. I don't see why we can't address both. I feel. Oh, like no, no, no. It has to be threefold. It, I, I mean, I totally get, you know, the Stanford WellMD reciprocal domains of wellness and the culture and the operations and personal resilience. It, it has to be all the things. I, I'm just saying that. I see a lot of physicians and healthcare professionals um, doing the Viktor Frankl go swine, which is mostly just to sit back and complain about how the, the efficiencies and the culture aren't improving. Right. And, and thinking that, well, the experts are saying it's not an issue of my resilience. So I'm not going to work on that anymore. No, I, I, I think that yeah. people need, people no, need to I, adapt. I do agree. People yeah. need to, people need to always be working on our, finding ways that we can make it through this. I don't know if resilience is the right word or not yeah. for what I'm thinking of, but there's a lot of things we can do personally, but at the same time, 
we should be making actions. We should be pushing things forward. I see the yeah. younger generation of doctors and healthcare workers doing that, speaking more truth to power than most of our generations did. I'm a little more hopeful that they can do that starting at the med school levels. Right. Um, but one thing you've talked about too is that people have lost faith in institutions. Uh, I've heard you talk about that. I've heard you feel that people are a little bit lost without some of these institutions that we all grew up. Well, not all of us, but some of us grew up with, and it's making us maybe a little more cynical, but the same, and I hear that. I do think that there's a part of that, but I also kind of feel like there's good reason why so much faith has been lost in institutions, in religious institutions, political institutions. I mean, there's a lot of good reason why people these days don't have uh, faith in institutions. And, and I, I acknowledge the, the power and the benefit of those institutions, but at the same time, I do like them being held accountable for right. things that they've done wrong. So, I mean, I guess, where is the, where is the balance between having something we can put faith into, whether yeah. it be, you know, uh, major league sports, your, your <laughs> political party, uh, you know, the church, the Boy yeah. Scouts, etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, being realistic about bad things that have happened because of those places and misjustice or, or injustice that's occurred in those institutions. You know, um, one of my medical school professors was named Jared Diamond, and he won a MacArthur Foundation um, award. Uh, he was a scientist, but kind of a sociologist and an author. And he wrote this book called Guns, Germs, Germs and, and Steel. Steel. Yes, which and I had he, on my bookshelf for like five years I, you know, and read the wonderful. first chapter of and never could finish, yeah. but always and, pretended that I did. No, yeah, I, I'll just give you, you know, the Cliff Notes version. But, but the guy was a genius. In fact, one day he brought in two huge platters of blanched asparagus. And he says, I want every student to come up and ha- have a piece of asparagus. Uh, and then tell me how your urine, you know, and then during the break, go pee and tell me how your urine smells. And the whole thing was about the whole genetic predisposition towards bodies metabolizing asparagus in a certain way, right? Anyway, so he talks about how, uh, you know, nations have sort of conscripted the church to kind of carry out their nefarious affairs in the world. And that. So I totally get the thing about how a lot of institutions have an ugly underbelly and it's hard for us to to believe in those things because most of us want to think in terms of black and white, like the Catholic church is all good or bad. Religion is all good or bad. And and of course, I think that one one thing that older, more experienced people are supposed to do is to think about things in a more realistic, complex way, Mm -hmm. right? And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not just it's not just that we're having trouble finding institutions believe, to believe in, but we're having trouble finding people to believe in. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I talk about, and maybe you've heard me talk about it before, is I think we should all have a Liger role model in life, like from you know the wonderful movie Napoleon Dynamite, where the guy sort of is drawing a picture of a lion and a tiger, and because it combines all the best elements of both, it's called it's called a Liger. And I, I think that we need to start by. <laughs> you know, identifying some people that we either know or we read about who have these traits or behaviors or habits that we really admire. And, and, and but, but of course that, that one person with that trait, they also have their faults. So just ignore those parts and have a liger of about 10 people and all their best traits. And then you try and be, live the best habits of your liger every day. So, so I think that's how we can still have role models and believe in things. And then in terms of institutions, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, so I was with TPMG for 31 years, right? And it's a gigantic organization. There are a lot of people and there are a lot of things about it that, that I didn't like. 
But though those were outnumbered by far by the fundamentals of it, which were excellent. I mean, prepaid, integrated care, evidence-based, physician-led, like, like I really believe in those fundamentals. But when you work there 31 years, you also learn about the ugly underbelly and things you don't like. But, 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 but one thing I tell people is, is that part of the human experience is that, of course, anything that you really believe in and love and invest in is going to be the source of your greatest joy and your greatest sorrow, right? So I joined mm -hmm. TPMG, source of my greatest professional joy, also my greatest sorrow. And same with marriage. I don't mind. I've been married to my wife, Leslie, for, for 36 years now. Of course, because we're so intimate and I love her so much, she is absolutely the source of my greatest joy and my greatest sorrow because we care about one another so much. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things I try and do as I get older and hopefully more mature and more wise is to hold these things simultaneously. And I also heard Doug Abrams, who wrote the Book of Joy, based on his interview with the Dalai Lama and, and, and uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. And, and he said, you know, some of you in the audience um, think that joy is the absence of suffering, but actually joy and suffering are two sides of the same coin, and that is called life. And you can't have one without the other. So, so I, I mean, I don't have any problems believing in people and institutions, because I just feel like all those people and institutions are, are just imperfect like I am. Mm -hmm. So I think you just need to pick some things you do believe in and move forward with it. I think, uh, you know, I'll throw this back to you, Kaveh. You've got your passion project, obviously this uh, podcast that gives you a lot of joy. And I think, you know, you've taken, yeah, I mean, you could be just doing your practice every day and coming home and being with your family and maybe that would be enough, but you have this other thing that's kind of like, an organizing principle in your life, like you're in your free time, you're kind of figuring out who your next guest is going to be or, and you're, you know, putting this all together. And so I think people need those kinds of projects. Um, mm -hmm. Atulka Wande, I think in one of his books said, you know, doctors should count something, you know, find something, you know, just keep track of something as a way to like, see the bigger picture of what you're involved in. Cause you can, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of great, uh, benefits we get from interactions with individual patients and we can build relationships with them and uh, they can make us feel great when we see them. But there's also a lot of just root, routine kind of things that we do on a daily basis that can be kind of repetitive. So being able to kind of pull back a little bit and say, okay, what's the bigger picture? I know, I mean, John was kind of the guru of wellness for, you know, a 10,000 physician medical group. So, and he got to travel around the region, give great talks and just maybe to lighten things up a little bit, John, there's one story you told that really, that I heard on a couple of your talks, you used to talk about your dad and there's, you'll probably know where I'm going with this, but every morning when I get up, I think of your dad. <laughs> so, so tell me that's, tell us all, tell the listeners that story about your dad. Yeah. Okay. So, so my dad was the pastor of a church, same church in Chinatown for over San Francisco's Chinatown for over 40 years. Well, I just joke that, you know, he couldn't find another job and stuff. And of course, as a pastor, he did a lot of calling in the hospital on sick people. Okay. So when I was in about the seventh grade, my dad came to me and said, John, you should be grateful every morning you could wake up and pee. And I thought, what? Like, like, what are you talking about? So anyway, I tucked that little morsel of weirdness uh, in the back of my mind. But then years later, I was in medical school and then residency. And of course, I'm working with people who have genital urinary problems or BPH or prostate cancer or kidney stones. And I, and I said to myself, oh, that's what my dad was talking about. My dad was talking about how we need to be grateful for the many gifts in our life because you're not always going to have them, right? 
And so, um, yeah, I, I, and then, I, you know, our house was very small, right? In the sunset, you know, three bedroom, one bath. Um, and so I would literally hear my dad wake up and say to himself, um, things like I'm grateful for meaningful work and the strength to do it. You know, I'm grateful I can wake up and pee today. I mean, and so at a very early age, I was instilled uh, with this belief that, yeah, maybe, you know, way before Bob Evans came out with all his gratitude research, which is wonderful. I had a role model for gratitude mm -hmm. and I thought, yeah, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. In fact, um, the, uh, just this week, I reconnected with a retired TPMG colleague. We had dinner and we were talking about this, this uh, mindfulness programming, well, about this program he wants to lead. And he was sharing with, with me, you know, some of his medical issues, uh, you know, which, uh, which I have the same list of things. And I used to just be so young and healthy. But one thing I talked about in the book in the last section is, how our body and brain just get worse. And, and people ask, why did you write that section? And I said, because I want to plant a sense of urgency in everybody reading this book right. that good health will not last forever and don't waste time. Yeah. Don't no, that's, waste time. That's something that comes up in your book a lot that yeah. I appreciate is that now is the time to start trying to work on these things to make yourself happier. And I think that's an important thing. I think that's like, I think it's almost Herculean in and heroic in nature for everyone to be doing their part to try and always improve their life, no matter how difficult that might sound. Um, because you, at the end of the day, you you make a, a point that I've heard before, but I need to keep hearing again and again. I'm sure my listeners do too, which is, you know, you never don't wait for retirement to be happy. Don't wait oh, yeah. for don't wait to for something to come down the road to be happy. Something's not coming, and you have to either make it kind of what we're talking about this whole time, which is don't just whine about it. Either works on yourself or work on the system. Do something, which I I think is what's important is doing like you say purposeful work. Right. I think that might be working on yourself. I think that might be trying to improve a system that you're in. It might be trying to teach others like you both do. I mean, I think that's super important to do this purposeful work. But you know what I what I find it's there's this paradox with medical care professionals, healthcare professionals, and I'm sure this expands to our other listeners as well. But you had mentioned earlier that we kind of have big egos, and we certainly do, doctors in particular, yeah. and healthcare workers have big egos, but there's also this paradox. And I feel this paradox is getting worse where you always feel like you're not good enough. And particularly right. now with workloads increasing, patient emails increasing, the, the, the things that doctors have to do constantly, I'm sure many, many doctors don't feel like we're good enough. And it's right. almost like there is this expectation on doctors that might not be realistic. And we're putting that on ourselves. I, yeah. I think that that's the perfectionism that John was talking about earlier. I mean, we were all A students at one time. And so good enough has to be good enough, you know, sometimes. You know, I, I gave a wellness talk for the NCQA conference um, last year. And um, uh, it was called the Doff and Dawn model of resistance. And I suggested that what we have to doff is the armor up and be perfect mentality that got us to where we are. And what we have to dawn is like the whole Brene Brown, I am worthy, you know, my best is good enough, you know, I'm smart enough and good enough and gosh darn it, people like me. I, I mean, I think that's a real thing, right? Uh, because the, the, the way we got to where we are is being, is, was by being obsessive, compulsive and better than everybody else. But, but of course, that, that's not what a real medical career 
uh, is all about. In fact, that exact MO is what will be destroyed, what will destroy you. Because if you've practiced for anything more than one week, you understand that it's, it's like two steps forward, but three steps back. And, and if you can't live with that, you can't survive a career as a nurse or a doctor or a respiratory therapist or a pharmacist. And, and, but nobody tells you that, right? So, so I look to role models like um, uh, Taylor Ryall was the president of the, of the Society of University Surgeons. And um, uh, she invited me to give a wellness talk at their annual meeting in Jacksonville a few years ago. But my talk followed her presidential address which was her very vulnerable personal disclosure of her burnout as an academic surgeon. Mm -hmm. She was Johns Hopkins, triple train, got a PhD at Texas, like the best of the best. And she told the audience filled with all these surgeons from, you know, Mass General and UCLA and the Mayo Clinic. She said, hey, you know, we're all like ducks, you know, on the pond. We're, we're all trying to look perfect for one another, but we're all struggling like hell, you know, beneath the, the, the surface. And we need to change that. We kind of need to do the Brene Brown you know, Vulnerable. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to tell the truth about it as opposed to lying living a lie. And I think that in medicine, if we all, if we make this joint commitment to change the culture, such that the culture is, we need to be excellent because our patients deserve us to be excellent, but, but we're also human. So we need to confide in one another, at least about what the real experience is like. And we need to be forgiving of ourselves and supportive of one another in the journey. If we just did that, nothing could change in efficiency, nothing could change in culture, and we would all be more well. Yeah, I think- I, I believe that strongly. I think those relationships are so important. And I do think one of the things that is really working against us right now is that because of the electronic record, so much of our work is just solitary with our back to the rest of the department or the rest of our coworkers and, or even like after hours at night, our kids are asleep, hunched over a computer, just dealing with the screen. Yeah. And you're disconnected from the patient's experience. They send you an email. They say, I'm having bleeding. You don't know is like, is the toilet bowl full of blood and overflowing? Or was there like a drop of blood on the toilet paper? You don't know the difference. So you get that anxiety. It's like, okay, is this a life-threatening thing or just like a minor mm -hmm. annoyance? Mm -hmm. And then you have no, there's no interpersonal connection. So I think that's, we've kind of lost that. Uh, you know, and, you know, it used to be, you would get a piece of paper, it'd be a lab result. You'd scribble yeah. something on it. You hand it to your medical assistant, you know, call her and tell her that everything's going to be just fine. And we're just kind of all doing this all with this electronic kind of disconnected communication. So I, I think that's what's happening. I, I agree. I mean, you, you say in your book, here's a quote, I like connection is a currency of wellness and communication is the primary way that we connect with one another. And I think that is very important. And I, if I understand it correctly, and, I, and I'm curious to hear you explain it as well. But, you know, I, I do think communication and connection is a big part of medicine. And there's another paradox, which is we are now more connected than ever via the computer to our patients, to other doctors, to pathologists, to nurses, to pharmacists. But at the same time, it's the same way that suicide rates are were the highest in in people who used to work as bridge tellers they're so connected there's someone that's passing ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Them every second. They're connecting yeah. with a human being every second, but they're not. And they're so right. disconnected at yeah. the same time. Those are the people that were the most broken. And it's sort of like that with us doctors now. I think it's really important to do two things. We need to work inwardly. But I do honestly think the, the systems-based approach, there has to be something in the system that deals with that directly. Whether that's just setting aside time so we don't have to do it at night. Whether that's paying, compensating doctors for that time that they're doing those things. Something needs to affect that. Something needs to change on that level as well, because I don't know if that email, I don't know if this, this, the technology is ever going to go away. It's only going to become more and more. And and there needs to be a way that needs to be put into the system, a way for us to address that. Yeah. You know, um, it was John Travis uh, who, who coined the phrase, you know, the currency of wellness is connection. And, uh, you, you know, he way before his time, he was running this wellness center in Marin County, you know, where I think they were using peacock feathers and everything. But but there's a lot of stuff. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait, don't brush over that fact. Wait, <laughs> what were they using the peacock? No, feathers no, no. For? Okay, no, we'll, we'll go back. But, but also um, in the book, I talk about Richard Swenson, who's a family doc from the Midwest. And he wrote this book called Restoring Margin to Overloaded Lives. And he said that his family practice was filled with patients who were all unwell because they were looking for wellness and things. And he says, I love this concept. He said, all wellness comes from relationships because the relationships you have with other people, that's called your social life. It includes your professional life, your cul-de-sac life, your marriage and everything. He said, your relation with yourself is called your emotional life. And I have run that phrase by so many counselors and psychiatrists, psychologists, and they think it's beautiful. Your relationship with yourself, the story you tell yourself about yourself is your emotional life. And he said, your relationship with God is your spiritual life. But but, you know, so we need to have these connections and, you know, you're talking, you know, T.R., you're talking about the, the EMR and stuff. Um, I like to highlight a best practice. So, uh, you know, Chip Heath, uh, it's from Stanford School of Business, wrote this book called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And he says, you know, whenever individuals or organizations face tough, tough times, there are always some people and groups who are responding better. And he calls those bright spots. So there's a bright spot in the Sacramento Valley several years ago. A friend of my, a doctor I'd hired was telling me about it. She goes, yeah, you know, the inbox is killing us. She goes, what I've been doing with two or three of my colleagues on Saturday morning is we rotate where we meet we all, and we take turns hosting and, and we all come with our laptops and we do our inbox together for about three or four hours and, and, and we have baked goods and the kids are playing in the backyard and you know we share stories and we kind of help one another with our inbox. They, they, said, they, they said, we'd prefer not to be doing this work on the weekends, but it's just what is. So we're going to make the best of it. We're, we're going to do something different that lets us do the work, but also lets us connect with one another and one another's families. I thought, so, so if you scan the horizon, even during tough times, there's always somebody doing it better. I think it's incumbent upon us as human beings to either be the best practice or to just shamelessly copy the best practice. But we're so arrogant 
that we're not looking around for help and other people doing it, especially in medicine. We were always the best. Why would we look around for good ideas from somebody else? Because you can't figure it out yourself, you idiot, <laughs> right? Like you are no longer just trying to be class valedictorian or to get the research prize. You are now a real life adult doing a super hard job. And if you do it in isolation, you will fail. But if you never get up, give up looking for role models, if you never give up trying to make connections with other people and yourself and God, if you're spiritual, um, you, you know, you'll just do much better. I love the concept of innovation in these, in these manners and, and people finding the best way to deal with this adversity and then sharing it. And I think that's fantastic. I think with, I don't know if it's just a generational thing or if it's just inevitable. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of people that are bitter about the fact that they have to be the ones doing that coming up with all the answers. I, I, again, it comes down to, I think you have to, if you are upset about it, you have to do what you can to try and fix it. Um, and I think that's the, for example, that example of the people getting together and making it an event is a, is, is great. I do think they should get paid for that. Yeah. And I think that should be something they should bill for. But I think that's great that people are, are pushing that, are finding ways to deal with that. Because you're right. You can't wait for somebody from above to do that for you. It's very unlikely it'll happen unless you're the one pushing for it, finding ways to, to work around it. Yeah. You, you know, you know, Victor Frank, Frankl uh, calls it being responsible to your circumstances. He, he said, as individuals, what when, when everything you, you've tried to do everything you can to change the system and change the culture he goes at the end of the day you as an individual the ultimate challenge in life is to be responsible to whatever circumstances you know have been presented to you right and, and if you you know one thing i talk about is again i borrowed the phrase from my dad's you know doctoral thesis and stuff is this whole idea about man's predicament and the means of its resolution. That is the essence of the human experience to me. That, that's why I wrote the book. I, I want to help people deal with our predicament, which is our suffering and our, our mortality and the means of its resolution. Like, like, like what are the thoughts and actions that will help you claim joy and meaning and purpose in your life, given that life is full of challenges and pain and suffering, right? And I say that not as a cynical person. I was voted the most optimistic person in my graduating class at Lowell High School, 850 people. Shocking. People, Shocking. You know, some people said, oh, it's because you're naive. I said, oh, it's not because I'm naive. It's because I grew up in San Francisco. And, you know, like I had a friend killed in the Golden Dragon Massacre, another friend who was shot uh, in that massacre. You know, I just attended his memorial service yesterday because that, that event changed his life. We had the Zodiac Killer when I was growing up. You know, I was in the public schools, they weren't very good. I mean, you know, I, I just grew up thinking, well, if, if this is what life is, and, and it is, I am just going to choose to try and make something meaningful out of this. At the very least, as Victor Franco would say, at the very least, I'm going to suffer well. Hopefully, I'll do more than just suffer well. Hopefully, I will claim some joy and meaning and purpose, you know, and build some great relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. Because Everybody listening to this podcast, if you're in healthcare, you know that statistically you're probably going to live maybe into your 80s, maybe your 90s, but you all know the people that woke up with painless gross hematuria and then they're dead and stuff, right? So, so since we know those things, why aren't we all living each day 
as if we're going to die. Right. And so one thing I say in the book is, you know, every day I floss, I max out my 401k and I wear a seatbelt. But other than that, I live recklessly as if every day is, could be my last <laughs> because it could. You know, I was driving. I teach medical students at this place called North State in Sacramento. And, and, and about six months ago, there was a first rain. I was driving home on Highway 5. And all of a sudden, I hear this big boom in the backside of my car. And I start spinning out of control on Highway 5. And fortunately, all the other cars and trucks, they stopped in time to not kill me. But then, you, you know, I said, oh, I blew a tire. And I, I kind of got off the road, got off, uh, off the street. And I got, got out to look out for my flat tire. And I, I didn't have a flat. I had been hit by another car. And, and you know, that could have killed me, right? And, and so it was just another example of how you really don't. So a lot of people say, oh, John, I'll figure those things out later. Like when? Yeah. Like when? Right. And by the time you decide to try and figure it out, you're probably so demented, you can't think it through, right? So, right. so why don't you do it now? Yeah, that's excellent advice. I can't think of a better place to close the show on because anything I say after that's going to detract from that point. Um, let me get some plugs in. Speaking of connection, um, Dr. Chuck, please tell people where they can find you, where they can find this book, Pearls from the Practice of Life. Again, a book that I uh, read and enjoyed. So where can people find it and buy it? Uh, you can find the book on Amazon. Just put in John Chuck, Pearls from the Practice of Life. Um, I hope you love it. Uh, I, I hope you put it by your bedside and just read it maybe one chapter every two or three days. Uh, I'd love to get some feedback from you at johnchuck1 at gmail.com. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say is um, uh, I was teaching at a conference and, and I pulled up an article uh, from the Annals of Surgery. It's written by a woman and she said, you know, um, she said ballpark 17% of surgeons are alcoholic and like 27% of women surgeons are. And she goes, you know, you know, people, colleagues, self-care is not selfish. Self-care is something you do so that you can take better care of your patients and your family and stuff. So I guess the last thing I would like to invite people to do is to kind of get over this belief that self-care is selfish and not in the best interest of your patients. Your patients deserve the very best of you. And the only way you can be that for them is to take care of yourself first. That's great advice. As a side note, I have your book here in front of me. And on the inside cover, there is this red symbol. Oh, There's this red symbol and it looks like Chinese letters. And I've been trying to learn Chinese. So I, I took it to my friend. I'm like, what does this mean? I'm like, wait, what, what does this mean? And he's like, it says Chuck. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and actually, it's just Chuck. It's the, the words that spell Chuck, but in a way that looks Chinese, the writing looks. And so it blew my mind. So if it's worth getting the book, people, for no other reason than you can see what I'm talking about. Can I tell you a quick one minute story about that? So, OK, yes. so I have a nephew, Evan Lesler. He started adapt. He's only like 38. He started adapt clothing a long time ago. And one of his things is gold blooded. And the Warriors sort of oh, adopted yeah. his gold blooded thing for the playoffs. Right? OK, so that super creative nephew he made up that that family stamp for us and he gave it to us at Christmas and we just love it. So I've been using it uh, to sign all my books. Yeah, so it looks like a Chinese chop, which is a Chinese character. Yeah, but it actually says Chuck in, you know. Yeah, Roman no, Lux. I think it's awesome. My friend looked at me like I was a dumbass, of course, <laughs> because there's like it says Chuck. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, all right, TR, uh, again, people, if you don't follow TR, you absolutely should. Uh, really one of the world's leading experts in uh, colorectal cancer. So if you, he's the guy to follow. TR, where can people find you? 
I'm at TR underscore Levin, L-E-V-I-N, and you can follow me on Twitter. There. Okay, please do that. Uh, and thank you to Nadine for help with production. If you haven't already, please follow us at uh, Twitter as well at the House of Pod and rate and review us iTunes if you haven't. Uh, thank you guys both so much. This is super fun. Uh, this is a nice conversation. I appreciate both your time. Thanks so much. Thanks great. for having me today. It's great to connect with you guys. We, we got to get John on Twitter. I think he should have like a daily tweet, a little bit of wellness uh, advice. You know, he's so, he's so happy right now. Don't, don't bring yeah. him to Twitter. Be, Just let, let, let him be happy. It's a cesspool. <laughs> Let's it's, see if Twitter can break him. Actually, Twitter is really both sides of the coin. It's like joy and uh, a cesspool <laughs> at the same time. So right. you got to be careful. I'm curious to see. Let's put him on Twitter like actively for like a year and just see, bring him back and see how happy he is. <laughs> well, this sounds sort of sadistic, but okay. I'll, I'll do anything you invite me to do. I, I just want to no. make you guys happy. Okay? <laughs> we will definitely get beers. Thank you guys both so much. All right. Hey, Good. thanks a lot. Take care. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.